0: Full disclosure, if you're visiting with us this morning, it's the first Sunday of a capital campaign in the life of our church. Uh, we have been on this hill for almost 50 years. We have maxed it out. God has given us uh, 25 acres out uh, on Hickson and Pike. And uh, we are, as we saw, the groundbreaking picnic is one of the things you can sign up for in the bulletin. We intend to break ground in a couple of weeks. And uh, over the next four weeks, we are spending some time together uh, seeking God. Listening, seeking, and asking Him what He wants to do through us in regards to um, funding this whole process. In your bulletin, there is a, a handout, uh, a little insert. I'm going to say there's going to be one of those there in the next four weeks, just ways to prompt your thinking as you pray, as you think, as you ask God. I, I would encourage you to be in the, still in the stage of asking that over these next few weeks to say, God, what do you want me to do? You know, capital campaigns, as I said, I think I've only been semi-part of one in my my whole life, and and it's one of those things that I know different people, when you hear that, we have different emotional responses, and it's not always positive, but I I would suggest to you that in the course of this, God is doing something in the life of our church. He is doing something in the life of our community. He is doing something in the life and for the lives of our children and the generations that come. Uh, It's an exciting thing, and I hope as we spend some weeks just thinking about it, that you will be open to believe that God has something to teach you, that God has ways He wants to stir and stretch you, that, that this is a process that has happened in the life of God's people throughout history and time, and that it is a time still when God is at work. And we have to ask ourselves why it is we shy away from such times. Jesus says a man can't love both God and money. And I, I, I suspect, at least in my own heart and those feelings there, that it is, it is that rivalry that makes us shy away from a time when when God wants to speak to us about our money. This morning we are in Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 8. The building of the tabernacle and the life of Israel. Hear then the word of God. The Lord said to Moses, Will you speak to the people of Israel, to my people, That they may take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. And you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting of the ephod and for the breastplate, and and let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its instruments, so that you shall make it. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning as your people, and we have gathered into your presence. To lift our hearts in worship, to open our hearts and minds to your word, to let you speak into our lives in ways that shape and fashion us in the image of Christ who gave himself for us. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to sit at your feet and to learn from you. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts passionate about your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are launching one of the most exciting endeavors in the history of our church. It is true, it is in a sense a once in a generation, often once in every several generations. As of 2017, we'll have been on this hill for 50 years. Now we've expanded on this hill until we've actually maxed it out, but almost 50 years on the property that God has given us there's room to, to grow and to do ministry for not only the next 50 years, but for the next generations and perhaps the next century and more. We're doing it not out of our own advancement. This is one of those things I think we really have to to search our hearts for. This is something we've owned that property for 15 years. We have not rushed into this. It is not something that we've had to have or to do. I have dreaded it, and the people around you will tell you I have dreaded it. I know what it entails. I know... But we truly believe that this is about ministry. It is about our ability to do ministry, which is about people. It's about the people of Hickson and our ability to embrace them and to embrace them into what God is doing in the life of His church. He has given us an amazing piece of property, paid for, sitting there for over a decade, waiting to be taken advantage of. And as we think about the opportunity and the challenge that is before us, We do have a model, several models in in the Bible of God doing similar kind of things and and throughout church history that God is, this is something God does. God builds churches and he grows them and he expands them and he multiplies and advances his kingdom. It was one of the first things that the Lord told the Israelites to do as they left Israel and wandered into the desert. And Moses went up onto Mount Sinai and received the law for the Lord. And part of that receiving was the pattern of a tabernacle, was the pattern of a a place of worship for God's people. We may not recognize it, at least I didn't until I really started looking at it, the enormous capital stewardship campaign that the tabernacle was in the life of Israel. It was an enormous campaign, similar to what we are engaging now. And in that sense, there's a similarity in it. The Bible spends about 50 chapters describing the tabernacle, describing its use, describing its particulars and its construction and its significance. And the New Testament picks up on it in the temple and in the in the same pattern in terms of its use and its significance in the life of God's people. The Lord led them to build not just a a tent, a tabernacle, but to really build a campus, right? It was a series of walls and courtyards. Really, the tabernacle was a prelim portable version of the temple, which had a series of courtyards that led to an inner sanctuary. And there was a special tent, a, a holy of holies at the center of this campus of, of portable tentage, uh, this, this campus, this place of worship for God's people, the place where God said he would dwell in the midst of his people, that he would dwell in that with the ark of the covenant and the holy of holies, a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Now, you and I know that in the New Testament, it says, Paul says, don't you know you are God's temple and his spirit dwells in you? So, you know, a building doesn't hold. We know it doesn't hold the same significance as it did. We don't have a holy of holies back here anywhere, right? And in one sense, the, the, the tongues of fire have fallen on you. You are God's temple. And we still gather, though, there still is this assembly, the ecclesia, the assembly of all of God's people and a place to do it in the New Testament. It was designed to be portable. They were nomadic. They were wandering before their years in the promised land. There are significant differences in that building and this one. We don't have the same infallible mandate from God to build it. Wouldn't that be nice, you know, in some ways, just... We don't have that same kind of mandate for almost anything we do. We take his word and we follow God to the best of our ability. We have a different role. The church building plays a different role in the life of God's people in the New Testament than it did in the old. And we know these things. But we do believe that God has given us the land. That we have had it for a long time. And that it is his intention for us to build for the future. And to press into new things for the next 50 years and the next generations. And for many of us, as we go into this project, we'll enjoy it for a few years. But it is our children and our children's children who will live in and bear the fruit of and have ministry in this place. And so there are some similarities. Let me just walk through three similarities in the building of this tabernacle in the wilderness in the beginning of of. of creation of God's people at that time and and what we're trying to do. And there are similarities in the ways that God works, right? Look in verse 8 and verse 9. He says, I'm going to let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture that you shall make. Right? God gives his people a vision of what he wanted to do. Now, again, this is a really infallible Clear vision. He outlines. We said some 50 chapters are spent in him outlining. This is how tall it will be. This is how wide it will be. This is how the dimensions of this. This is the material you will use for this. You will make this of wood, and you will overlay it in gold, and you will create these, and you will do. And there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an exact pattern that he gives. But he gives his people a vision, and he says, here's what we're going to build as a center of worship in the life of the community, and it will be a symbol, or more than a symbol in the life of old Israel, of my presence with my people. And he's given us, we believe, vision. And I believe that throughout history, God hasn't stopped leading and guiding and giving his people a vision of the future, right? We have to have a vision of the future of what God is doing and what God will do. What does it look like for his kingdom to grow and advance? What does it look like for Jesus to build his church in the gates of hell and not to stand against it? What does it look like to share the gospel and to see people come? We have this vision of what God is doing. God is always and continues to lead and guide and give vision to his people. One of the most surprising things about the tabernacle and the vision that God gave to Israel was the cost of the construction of the tabernacle. How much it was going to cost to to build this. It was a portable tent, we would say, a portable thing, but it was no ordinary tent. If I were to ask you just in your head to come up with a figure, what do you think it would? if we were to build a replica of this according to the pattern given in the Bible, and we built that on our property, just a replica of what they did. Do you know how much that would cost? You'd, you'd have to sit down with a calculator and some history books and figure out how much a talent is. Um, in, in Exodus thirty-eight twenty-four, just a few chapters after this, we're told that they used more than twenty-nine talents of gold. So that's one material because they use a, a whole. You saw the list of materials, right? Go, twenty-nine talents of gold, and we know that talent is a weight of measure. In the New Testament, in the parable of the talents, when they gave one talent or two talents or three talents, he gave them a certain amount of gold or precious metal. It was a weight. And so when it says they use 29 talents of gold, I just need to tell you that's a lot of gold. It's a lot of gold. It is, according to my math, you can check this out. I may be off a little here and there. You get different things. But it's somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty-eight two thousand eight hundred and forty-two pounds of gold. Almost three thousand pounds of gold. We sell gold by the ounce. Right? And and the ounce is you know how much an ounce of gold? I looked it up this week. How much an ounce of gold is selling for? Over eleven hundred dollars for an ounce. Right, so I'm just—I'm not good at math, and I, I'm always corrected. So you can help me. You can tell me at the door. I did it on my phone, and you were off by—it's somewhere in the neighborhood, just in gold, of 28 to 37 million dollars, depending on whether a talent was uh, 75 pounds or whether a talent was 94 pounds. It's, I've read both with some regularity. So a talent is somewhere between 20, 75 and 100 pounds, and they had 29 talents of gold some 34,000 ounces of gold at $1,100 an ounce, somewhere in the neighborhood of $30 million for the gold. You have scholars figuring out, you got this list of stuff, and it says they brought all this stuff, and they described the building of it, and they used all these other materials. And you scholars figuring out the value of the other materials, and apparently if you add up the value of all the other materials that it took to build the temple, that would equal about twice the value of the, just the value in gold. Gold was one-third of the value of the whole thing. And the, and the rest of the materials added up to about double that. So you're looking at a project. Five tons of silver, four tons of brass, jewels, wood, cloth, no small vision that God has given to Israel. Somewhere in the neighborhood of $85 to $100 million project in our numbers, right? In today's gold and, and that kind of thing. So the question that should be niggling at the back of your mind this is no small vision that God gave Israel. Right? And I like that word niggling. You know, it, it, it's tickling in the back. of your head. Something ought to be niggling in the back of your head that these guys were just, we're, who are these people that God is telling to build this thing? How long have they been out of Egypt? Right? This is a bunch of ex-slaves, not three generations down the road of prosperity. These are ex-slaves who just walked out of, out of Egypt. And into the wandering when Moses goes up and gets this vision from God to build this temple. And the, I mean, it's a pretty daunting task for a bunch of ex-slaves. Where would those kind of resources come from? And, and I have to tell you, it's one of the reasons I dreaded a project like this. I mean, not only the amount of work and what it would do to my life, but, but the other was well, the, the resources that it would take. I mean, it's a big vision to do something like this. And I know that sometimes you feel that. Where does the resources like that come from? Where did God's people get them? How can we launch into this kind of a project? Where will it come from? How does God do it? And that's the second parallel that I believe between the tabernacle, what God did there, what God did has done through biblical history and church history and still does today is this, that God provides it. And God has already, in some senses, I would say God has already provided it. It's already in our hands. Right, look at verses 3 to 7 is, is God's provision. He called them to bring all this stuff, bring gold and silver and bronze. Were they going to go into the desert and dig some mines? Like, where are they going to get all of this, right? Bring all of these fine jewels, these, you know, onyx and the other jewels for the setting of the ephod, which is a whole bunch of precious and semi-precious stones, you know, this fine dyed linen. You know, where are these guys going to get all this stuff? amazing and beautiful thing in this whole story is God had already given it to them. God had already literally put it in their pockets. They already had it. All the needed resources, it was already done. God had given them this great vision, and, and when he did so, he gave them this vision. He had already given them the provision, right? which I think is very cool. And when God called them to do it, he had already provided everything that they needed. Right? It's the way God works. He gives us, He commands us to do something, and then He gives us what we need to do it. I think that's true in the spiritual realm all the time. When God says, do it, whatever it is, apart from me, you can do nothing, but, with, but by my grace, if you abide in me, you can do all things. And there is a sense in which whatever God commands, God provides and empowers and makes possible and makes happen. And so, you know, There's this whole story in Exodus 3. You just got to go back to Moses' calling. Remember, God calls him. He's wandering around. He sees a bush on fire burning without being consumed. He wanders over what's going on. God speaks to him from the midst of this miracle and and calls him to the deliverance of his people from Egypt, from slavery. And in the midst of this call, God gives him a bunch of promises about how he will speak through him and, 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 and know the Pharaoh will do what you say because I'm God and and, and you're just my instrument. And in the midst of this, there's one promise that we often forget about. It's here in your bulletin under the third point. Yeah, we're already there. It's here in your bulletin under the third point, Exodus 3, 21 and 22. God says, I'm going to give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you will not go empty, but each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry, for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Right? Exactly, this is exactly what God did. He had a plan not only to deliver his people, but he had big plans for them. He had projects in view that He, and a vision that he gave them to do it. And then when he called them to do it, he made all the provision necessary for it to happen, didn't he? Exodus twelve, it's there right under that. Exodus twelve. The people of Israel had done also as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry and clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have whatever they asked. They opened their arms, opened and and gave them as they set them free, in such a way that you could say they plundered the Egyptians on their way out the door. Right? God gave them everything that they needed to accomplish his plan and to do what he was asking them to do. He provided by prospering his people. So when God calls them to build this tabernacle, I mean, you if you were at the vision dinner, I told you this humorous adage that I heard many years ago. It's not mine. Um, but it was literally true for Israel. When God, you know, if, if Moses had said to Israel, when he came to them and said, look, God wants us to build this tabernacle. I was up on the mountain. I got the, the commandments and I got this, this pattern here, and then Moses could have said to the Israelites, but here's the thing here. The, you know, the good news is God has provided everything that we need to build this tabernacle. The bad news is it's still in your pockets. And this was literally true. This was absolutely literally true. They had plundered the Egyptians. The Egyptian had given them the gold and the silver and the clothing, and they had prospered the Egyptians so that when they wandered into the desert and God said, came down and said, let's build this thing They literally had what they needed in their pockets. Right? Well, literally, you know, I don't know if they had pockets, but you know what I mean. And their purses, buried in their tent, wherever it was, they had it. God had given what they needed, God had already given it to them, already prospered his people beyond what was necessary. This is a foundational truth. In the life of every believer the Lord prospers us and it is through God's favor that we acquire the resources of the world. right We see it so plainly in the life of Israel at this moment it is God who prospers us. it is, it is God who gives us favor and allows us to acquire The resources of the world. I mean, in in Israel's case, it was literally given to them by the Egyptians. But in our case, it's still true. And the Bible says this over and over, something that we, as we work and labor and make money, and this is one of the reasons we don't like to talk about it much. Like, this is... My money, you know, and that, you know, that negative feel of the church and, you know, the people on TV who are always asking for money. All they want is your money. And there's this, you know, and I understand that, that there, there, there is a sleaziness to some of what goes on in the name of Christ. But here's the other thing. And, and you've heard me say this before. Jesus talked more about money than any other topic in the Bible. You know that more than about heaven, more than about hell. Jesus talked about money and wealth and stuff. Whether it's the parable and the uh, the, the widow's might and that story, the rich, the foolish, a rich man, you know, to the rich man in Lazarus, to the to couple of different versions of the parables of the talents, to and the list goes on. The rich fool who built barns and Jesus talked so much more more about it than almost any other topic. So here's the thing: that that there's a sleazy way to be about money, and I understand that. And God help us and save us. But if you do not preach and understand money faithfully there's a sleaziness about that too because if Je- how can we follow Jesus and not talk about what Jesus talked about how can we- how can we hear Jesus say you cannot serve both God and money and then but we're not going to talk about money because it makes me uncomfortable that's why Jesus talked about it that is why Jesus talked about it because it made people uncomfortable it called them it called them to worship one God, and, and, and the number one rival in the human heart for our worship, at least the way I read the New Testament, is you can't worship both God and money. You've got to pick, and the one will serve the other. If you, if you worship God, your money will serve that. But if you worship money, you know, then God is the one who gives it to you, and he's just, your, right? he's just the one who, who serves me by making me prosper so I can live a certain kind of a lifestyle. Right? God serves me and my prosperity rather than the other way around, where God prospers me and what I have and who I am serves him. Seek first, therefore, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that you worry about that your money pays for. God takes care of and provides our needs. This is a foundational truth. The Lord prospers us. He favors us. He gives us the ability to require. There, Deuteronomy 8, under the last verse there, He says this, beware unless you say in your heart, and we're still in the Pentateuch, we're still our way into the promised land. He's already prospered them, and he's warning them, even as he's already plundered the Egyptians on their behalf, and as he's sending them into the promised land flowing with milk and honey, he says, you're going to build houses, plant grapevines, you're going to prosper and forget about me. And here's the danger, he says, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and might in my hand has gotten me this wealth. Don't we think that way? I, I worked hard. I thought it out. I figured it out. I, I, I produced it. I did it. We have this certain sense. That's why we don't want to talk about money. It's mine. And really nobody can speak into it. And I'm not even sure Jesus gets to speak into it unless it's by myself in a quiet time somewhere. Right? That Jesus gets to speak into it. Right? Lest we think that I have done this, that I was smart enough, healthy enough. You know, I made it. What the Bible says is God has given us. What does he say? He says, you shall remember that it is the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Are you smart enough? He made you smart. Are you diligent enough? He gave you that ability. Are you healthy enough to work hard? He gave you your health. Right? Did you have opportunity? What opportunity? Because there are a lot of people. You could have been born in rural Bangladesh. And the chances are you would not be where you are right now. It is God who gives us the opportunity. It is God who gives us health. It is God who enables us to get wealth. And he says, no matter how you, whether you planted the vineyard and you cultivated and you grew it and you prospered, and if you start thinking, I'm just going to build more barns and praise be to me, he says that that is a dangerous way of thinking. Beware lest you think. You say in your own heart, it is by my power and my might that I have gotten his wealth. All of these things are the good gifts of God. All of these things come from his hand. Because you could have been born very different ways in very different places and have nothing that you have. Right? We must know this. We must see this. Jeremiah 9 says, it's there in your bulletin. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Right? Were you smart about it? Were you strong and did you work hard about it? Let not the rich man boast in his riches, that which was produced by your wisdom and your strength. Don't boast in any of those things. If you boast, say what? God is good. And God has given me all that I have. 1 Timothy 6. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, as for the rich in this present age, P- Timothy is a pastor, tell the church, those who are rich in this present age, by the way, which is all of you, <laughs> it's all of you, but tell those who are rich in this present age and charge them with this. Tell them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, the God who richly provides us with everything that we have. You enjoying good things, then you're, you should be on your knees and worship. God is good. And in, not everybody in this life is having the time of it that you are, that we are, that God has allowed us to graciously experience. He gives his, to His people so many reasons. Why do we have so much money and resources? And when I say this is all of you, that's because Americans are in the richest, like 2% of the world or some crazy number like that, 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 the, that, the, that the Americans at the poverty level are richer than 75% of the rest of the world. That Americans, that we have so much. God has blessed us. Why did He allow the Israelites to plunder the Egyptians? Why did He make the Egyptians so favorably disposed toward His people? Why did He want this group of ex-slaves to have so much? What does God want His people to do with all that He has given them? And it reminds me of the parable of the talents, doesn't it? Quite literally, the talents of gold, of wealth. Why does God, why did Jesus give out the talents? And what did he expect? What does he expect? God had entrusted his people with all the material resources needed to accomplish his purposes. He's given it to us. God could have sent gold and silver down from heaven like he sent manna down. Or he could have told him where to dig and provide a goal, but he didn't. God loves to work in and through his people to make us channels of his power and grace. He let, he let wealth flow into the hands of his people. And then he called his people to generosity and to work. And God has worked through his people. It's the way it's always been done since the earliest days until now. We truly believe that God has given us everything that we need. Every dollar, every penny. The leadership had barely made the decision to make this move. And God raised up a buyer for this building. I don't know if you know, it's not necessarily easy to sell a church. It's a very unique piece of property. If we were to try to get the apartments next door to buy it and expand over here, they'd have to buy the building, then tear it down and build what they want to build. So somebody who wants to build on it has to not want the church and be willing to pay the price of the full thing to be you see what I'm saying? I mean there's this thing. So churches generally buy churches or or someone who can convert it into, and it it necessarily, I mean, they do sell, but it's not easy. But we had barely made the decision, we believe God is saying, move. Build and move, it's time. And somebody stepped up and said, we heard you were selling your building, we think we'd like to buy it. And we are, we have been in negotiations for the last six months, and we hope that next week we'll sign a contract. And it is, and they see this building as God's provision for them that they are bursting at the seams in their facility. They don't have the resources to do anything else. And they see this building uh, is the perfect size for them to grow into within their budget and God's provision as he's building his church. And so God does that. As we move forward, we really are making room for God to bless another congregation and their growth and what he is doing in their life and their people. So God plundered the Egyptian. Let me just end with these thoughts, Then He plundered the Egyptians. He gave the wealth to his people. But I would say, and this is where we are right now, and I want you to hear this in the right way, so let me just try. But here's the thing. It wasn't enough to give the wealth to his people, was it? Just the fact that the, the people of God had the wealth, had what was needed, wasn't enough. It says, verse 2, Speak to the people of Israel. Give them my vision. Tell them what I'm thinking so that that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive a contribution for me. Right? For me. From every man whose heart moves him. Right? So the next thing that God does is he moves in the hearts of his people. For generosity. And that's what these four weeks are about. As we move up, October 11th is our commitment day, the day that we're going to make pledges for the next three years of how we're going to give over and above our regular tithe over the next three years to see this thing done, to make it happen. And what we're asking is that over these weeks, these intervening four weeks, starting today and through, that we are just seeking and asking God, what do you want me to do? You know, we might think, I can do this much, and I may have even started thinking this much. But as you pray and to seek, God sometimes will stretch us. God sometimes, who knows what God will do? Do you believe that God can, God surprises me all the time. He surprises me about me all the time. And all we are asking is for you not to be open to us, but to be open to God. To be on your knees and say, God, what do you want to do? What are you asking me to do? Exodus 35, it's there in your bulletin under the last point. It says, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution for the Lord. And whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze. And it says, and they came. Everyone whose heart was stirred. Everyone whose spirit moved him. They brought the Lord's contribution to be used. So they came, both men and women. And all were of a willing heart. They brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of objects, and every man made a dedicated offering of gold of their wealth to God. What a beautiful passage. We don't want anything different. We want to see God work in the hearts of his people, right? Look at the words, like, of a generous heart. Their hearts were stirred. Their spirits were moved. Their hearts were willing. They dedicated an offering freely and joyfully. Jesus says, God loves a cheerful giver. My friends, we are not interested in manipulation. The leadership here we 're not interested in manipulating you or twisting your arms or making you do something. We are simply saying that between you and God. Pray for this to happen to you right i mean don 't you want to be that person? the person where God is moving, where he 's making our hearts willing, where he is uh, stirring and moving us and and he is accomplishing his good purposes and his plan because because God's people in and through us, his will is done. I, I want God to give me a willing heart, to be a cheerful giver. In Exodus 36, this didn't make your bulletin, 36 verses 3 and 5, the end of this process. Exodus 36, he says, the workmen said this, they keep bringing free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen had to say to Moses, the people bring much more than enough. For doing this work than the Lord has commanded. And Moses had to tell the people to stop bringing gold. To stop giving your wealth because we've got too much. Can you imagine? I'm trying to imagine. <laughs> I really am. Yeah, I'm just trying to imagine what would that look like. Like God God moved. Hearts and spirits were made willing. And it says they kept coming every day. They brought more. Maybe they brought some yesterday. But overnight, God said, you know what? Give them those earrings too. And they came back and they just kept giving. And it says until the workman had to say, too much. No mas. No Spanish. So can you imagine? Will you pray with me? And just ask God, what do you want me to do? How do you want to stretch me? What sacrifice do I need to make? How do I need to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness and let you add all these other things unto me and to, to let you stretch me? We're like the Israelites. We're a people set free by the grace of God who are have plundered, in a sense, the Egyptians. We are blessed beyond measure, not just materially, but spiritually. God has given us everything. That's the underlying thing. God has given us everything. And all he is, in a sense, asking is us to Know Him and love Him and be like Him and participate with Him as stewards of all the good things He has given. Pray with me. Father in Heaven, we thank You that You are so good and so gracious. We have so much. We don't even know how much we have. We do not know how wealthy we are on the scale of this world. But I pray, Father, for us as a church, as we press into these weeks ahead, that You would just make us open. To the move of your spirit. Open to what you would say. Open to what you would do. Open to your calling. And that you would enable us. To answer the call. To do only. What you want us to do. These things we ask and pray in Jesus name. Amen.